Hi, and welcome to Dismantled, a podcast for intersectional environmentalists. I'm your host, Leah Thomas, and throughout this season, we'll be featuring conversations with diverse activists, changemakers, and leaders in the fight for climate justice. Intersectional Environmentalists, or IE, is a digital platform with resources, information, and action steps to help dismantle systems of oppression in the environmental movement. We believe conversations about the climate crisis must address and be led by those most impacted by it, Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. This season is sponsored by Drops. For our first episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Camila Journey and Abby Thomas, advocates and personal friends of mine, who I met while working at Patagonia and who are now members of the IE Council. So what's your name, your pronouns, what do you currently do, and how did you get involved with Intersectional Environmentalist? Hey, I'm Abby Thomas. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I work at Patagonia. I do environmental employee engagement. Um, So figuring out ways to empower and engage employees internally at the company And I got involved with Intersectional Environmentalist um, through Leah, actually. Um, We worked together at Patagonia, and we consistently talked about kind of my perspective, how I um, am Ethiopian and Nigerian, and I lived um, in Nairobi, Kenya for most of my life. So I always looked at environmentalism through kind of a global scale and how um, the global South is disproportionately affected by climate change. So um, it was kind of the best fit, and um, I was so excited to be a part of it. Hi, my name is Camila Jornet. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I currently work in strategic marketing for Tracksmith, which is a specialty running apparel brand. Um, Prior to that, I met Leah Thomas through Patagonia, uh, where I worked in marketing for Warnware and Tinshed Ventures. Um, Through that and many conversations at work about being a Black woman in the outdoor space, I was able to have the opportunity to join Intersectional Environmentalist, and I'm really happy about that. Yay, and I'm super happy that you all are a part of it. Um, So let's get right into it. Let's get into it. Intersectionality as a theory was created by Kimberly Crenshaw to explore her identity as both Black and a woman and how those overlapping identities really impacted and influenced her life. Do you relate to that at all or have you felt tension in spaces that were maybe pro-women, so maybe feminist circles, but not necessarily pro-Black? I know I've had some experiences where I've had difficulty, even with things like the Women's March, where I wanted to be super excited about it, but I didn't really see myself reflected in some of the crowds that I was in. And I had this weird duality of, okay, well, I love feminism. This is great. I want to advocate for women, but some feminist circles just didn't really seem to advocate for my livelihood. I would say I've definitely had those feelings myself. Um, Primarily, I would say they show up in this sort of comparison model that happens a lot in these circles where 
as a woman, other women can relate to the struggle of trying to be a feminist and trying to have these values and strengths. But then if you layer on top of that the fact of being Black, people are really quick to snap back and try to compare their struggle or say that they relate as a woman and that they've had this experience. And I feel like we we have to get past this point of trying to compare struggles and say who's struggled more and just be open to listening and learning because that's when we really will start to grow. And that's when those conversations will flow much more seamlessly is when everyone is willing to listen and realize that the struggles might be different. But if we're together in understanding them and that Black women aren't the only women who have to speak up about the struggles they face, then we can make that progress a lot quicker. So... Absolutely. And I find it kind of odd that this comparison game can really be a silencing tool, kind of like a trump card. Ew, I hate I hate that word with everything in my being, but it feels like a trump card where you might try to say like, okay, you know, I'm all, I'm down, down for women, but let's talk about the pay rates and how black women are paid even less and indigenous women are paid even less and Latinx women are paid even less. And sometimes when you bring that into it, it seems like people in feminist circles might be like, you know what? Like, why does race, how, do, how does this connect? How does this belong? And it really can be kind of a silencing tool. But Abby, have you felt that at all, kind of in feminist circles? Yeah, definitely. I was like, do we have an hour? And I guess we do. <laughs> but like, it's basically um, a huge part of my life because, I mean, I, I know like all of us, we have been in predominantly white institutions and spaces. And so, um, I mean, I've definitely felt the brunt of white feminism. I mean, from having conversations even just with my teachers about how some feminist books that are, you know, supposed to be kind of the pinnacle of what it means to be woman and just really advocating for equality have racist aspects to them. Like, look at the bell jar. That's like the best example um, and even just advocating for myself and calling that out, um, I was met with exactly what we're saying, fragility and, um, oh, well, I didn't look at it that way or I didn't notice that. So that's obviously not a good point to make. And even just conversations with my, you know, my white women friends, it's always met with fragility or I don't see color. You know, you could be insert any color of the rainbow. And it's like, how are you comparing me to someone who's red? There's no person. There's no purple people. (laughs) There are no purple people. Like that is so demeaning. Um, So yeah, it's, it's been a huge part of my life. And I think that I've always kind of reverted to being silent out of self-preservation. And I know a lot of black women have felt that as well. Um, And it's hard to get out of that, but it's also so empowering and powerful to continue to fight and advocate for yourself, but in a way where you're not constantly being emotionally burdened. And I guess that that made me think of, I guess, the other end of the spectrum um, with kind of the strong Black woman stereotype and how sometimes I've experienced these microaggressions, but I'm like, I got to power through it. I'm just so thankful to be in this space. You know, I'm one of, you know, the only people here, so I just got to, you know, but 
now I've realized that joy is such a radical act and taking care of myself needs to be a top priority. And sometimes that means not, you know, thinking that I have to power through it um, because we're still human at the end of the day, regardless of what stereotypes exist for how we should kind of navigate throughout this world. Um, And I feel like sometimes I operate from a kind of a scarcity mindset. Like all of my family is in, you know, Missouri. So I'm like, okay, I'm out here. I made it. I just got to do all this stuff, exhaust myself. And then maybe one day I can experience joy. But I think something with intersectional environmentalists that we're trying to promote is that you can have joy now. You can be an activist, but you can also experience joy and take care of yourself. Um, So how have you been dealing with kind of that strong Black woman stereotype? Because being the only in a space sometimes comes with a lot of pressure. And how have you tried to implement self-care into your routine? I try not to lie to people. Whenever I'm asked questions in interviews, like, what's your morning routine? I'm like, I don't have one yet, but maybe one day I will. I jolt out of bed, but maybe one day I'll get there. Um, So yeah, progress over perfection. I feel like recently it's been, I mean, this year has been a whirlwind for so many reasons, Um, but the emotional labor that's gone into so much of my work this year is something that I've had to put a lot more thought into how I show up and where I choose to show up and exert myself. I was actually having a discussion with my manager this week, and she told me powerful words take power. And that really resonated with me because I can be on a Zoom call discussing DI in the spaces that I work in, and I'm literally like trembling under the table because like that energy has to go somewhere because it takes so much for me to open up and to share. And while I might be viewed in that space as, oh, thank you so much for opening and I need to hear this in order to grow and this is what I need. It kind of rubs me the wrong way because it feels like I'm being used in a sense, even if that's not how they meant it. But I don't want to have to tremble under a table in order to share my truth and I don't want to have to be the only person who's able to share that truth. And so I've really taken a step back um, from a lot of conversations and deciding, am I needed in this space? Or is there someone on my team that can have these conversations? Is there someone in my circle that is able to go to bat for me, even if I'm not sitting there? Because that preservation of self is, is really important. And I would rather not have to attend every single discussion on how to show up and be an ally or be anti-racist because it's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I know everything either, but I'm living it so much more um, than a lot of the people having these discussions. So for me, that often means taking time to cook a great meal, like seeing what's in my CSA box, trying to whip something together, putting the screens away and just unplugging from it. And that for me has brought enough peace where I can like cook, sit, eat my meal, put a record on and just like chill. So. Yeah, um, I'd have to agree with Camila as well. Um, I think the biggest thing that's helped me is learning to say no. And to be honest, I'm very bad at it. (laughs) I'm still working on it. (laughs) But um, I, I think giving myself the space to say no 
um, and empowering myself to do so has been very helpful just because it's interesting how that, you know, strong Black women stereotype isn't just put on Black women externally, you know, from white people or whomever, but also within um, a lot of Black communities as well, just like the adultification of Black women. And so it's super difficult to kind of take that mindset and say no to it. Um, But that's how I've been learning how to get through my days, whether it's, you know, saying no to exerting more energy or just through conversations with my white friends or my white colleagues um, and just giving myself the space to, to do that too. And this might be a little moment of free consulting, so we won't spend too much time on this. But if there's an organization and they want to do better, but they want to do things in a way that's kind of innovative and they don't want to burden their Black employees with kind of fixing the problem for them, Some things that I've been thinking about would be what's the most equitable approach for a company to say, we want to listen to our employees, but we want you to feel valued for your emotional labor. And I've started to think about it and I feel like I gaslit myself into thinking that this wasn't a reasonable option, but like pay, pay your employees, pay them to fix your organization. And I feel like, I was like, wow, this is such a radical idea. And I'm like, no, it's not at all because like white people get paid all the time. So I don't know what that would exactly look like, but what are your thoughts on, I guess, the need for compensation or some sort of, some sort of empowering component that comes to it? Because I've seen a lot of companies, they want to kind of pick the brains of their black employees to fix their problems. But then it seems like it's on those few individual employees to fix the company and have a better livelihood within that organization. And I don't think it should be our burden to advocate for our safety. I feel like it should be the organizations as well. Um, hell yes. Please pay us. I hate when people are like, oh, can I pick your brain? I'm like, oh, are you going to pay me? <laughs> um, like, <laughs> exactly. I mean, um, I, I just think it's so important because you're not only exerting just, um, you know, mental energy, but also emotional, you're kind of re-traumatizing yourself. You're opening those wounds that you've had to do the work um, to solve and to, or, you know, to at least mitigate. And so when people are asking you to exert all of that extra energy, and then also be exposed to kind of, you know, everyone's thoughts, especially, um, those white people who aren't even close to being there or understanding or are just like racist, <laughs> um, it's traumatizing. And so, you know, pay is the answer and really looking at ways that are equitable and compensating people, especially for those who are hourly versus salary. So those are the the questions um, that really need answers um, and, you know, reparations. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would definitely just reiterate, this work is a job. Like, it is a job that people need to get paid for. This is not work that comes easy to 
anyone working in this space. It's work that, yes, needs to be done. But if I look at my job description and I'm doing everything in my job description and then you're adding this task that is probably the most exhausting of everything on the list and you're just expecting me to do it just because it's not really fair and it's really bizarre (laughs) when you think about it. Like it just, it doesn't make sense that corporations are now beginning to recognize there's a problem and then turning to the people most affected by the problem to solve the problem and in turn not doing anything in order to pay them for the work they're doing to solve the problem. It's just this very strange circle that we're living in right now. And for me, as a marketer, I think about DEI in my work as a marketer. And I would hope we can get to a point where finance thinks about DEI in their work and HR thinks about DEI in their work. And all these different departments are doing the work on their own job description. Like that's that should be a part of everyone's job, but we're not there yet. And so if you're going to keep tax tasking the people who are being affected by this, you need to add a line to their job description if they so want it and pay them for it. Exactly. Just just straight facts, straight facts coming from both of you all. Um, so I guess I want to dive into our experience in the outdoor industry, which we kind of touched on. I never thought I would end up in the outdoor industry. I thought maybe sustainable fashion. And I guess there's kind of those like overlapping things with us previously working at Patagonia, all that stuff. Um, Something that I found to be one of my biggest takeaways from the outdoor industry is people not knowing my name, which I think it's funny that after two years, one of my biggest takeaways is that some people that I worked with, whether it was, you know, people that I went to outdoor retailer with, they didn't know me. You know, a lot of times they thought I was Abby. A lot of times they thought I was Camila. We are one and the same. I'm not sure. (laughs) You know, and I'm saying that all to say I can kind of chuckle about it, chuckle about it now, but it made me realize, okay, when there are so few of us, it is so important for inclusion in this space to know who we are. We are different people. We're not, the Black experience isn't a monolith. And we come with so many different ideas and specialties and all that kind of stuff. And that was just a roundabout way of me kind of trying to get to the question, what do you all wish that more people understood about the need for diversity and inclusion? For me, I think the first thing would be the importance of recognizing someone's name, their work, and their contributions, and their emotional labor that goes into making that organization a better place. But if you could talk to the outdoor industry as a whole, what would you say? That's a great question, Leah. And there's so many thoughts. I'm actually Abby. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many thoughts on this One, I agree with everything you just said. Names are so important. And as a Black woman with a name that is frequently mispronounced, being mistaken for another Black woman's name is just like, I can't take it. It's it's too much. But I feel like there just needs to be this acceptance that people are whole people. They're not just the pieces that you want to see. And I've seen this a lot in the outdoor industry, working for various brands, people, particularly white people, like to pick a piece of you that they focus on. So to some people, I'm 
the girl in the running photo shoots. And that's all I do is run for photos. To some people, I'm the Black activist. And all I do is have these tough conversations where I'm trembling under the table talking about how they can be better. And for some reason, I feel very few people actually see me in my workspace as a marketer. That's like the last step they get to is the reason that I'm even in these conversations to begin with. And it's something where we can't pick apart people and hold them to different standards based on which piece of the person we want to focus on. We are whole people. We have entire lives. Sometimes I'm really into the environmentalist movement. Sometimes I'm really focused on feminism. Sometimes I'm really focused on just getting my job done from 8 to 6.30 or whatever my hours are that day. And I wish that the industry would stop pigeonholing us into whatever category fits their needs on that day. So... Yes, with all the S's to what you both have already said. And can we just talk about how this applies to something that recently happened to Cori Bush? Oh, yes, please. Where she had a mask that said Brianna Taylor. And when she went up on the hill and was trying to meet her fellow House representatives mainly those who were Republicans, called her Brianna Taylor. That is absolutely disgusting. The disrespect. Completely. Um, so we see that translate everywhere, unfortunately, whether it's school or the office. Um, but for me, within the outdoor industry, and I think this is just kind of expanding on what Camila has already said, I think that outdoor industry brands need to recognize the humanity that's associated with justice and equity and implementing that within their brands. I think everyone is so quick to make the case about why justice and equity is important, whether that's financial or just adding more perspectives um, or just because of the fact that Gen Z is about to be like, what, 50% racially diverse and like BIPOC. Um, and no one is focusing on the humanity of it and how it's just the right thing to do. Like, If we want to make this world a better place, we need to make sure that it's including all identities of a person or a community um, and, and not just benefiting one singular homogenous identity. So, I mean, I, I just think that's paramount. Um, and that's going to make it even more substantial and deep and sustainable. Because if you're just chasing capitalism in order to make people's lives easier, it's not going to last. Um, people are going to forget it. It's going to be a trend, kind of like what we're seeing already with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's kind of the the biggest issue that needs to be addressed for the outdoor industry. Snaps to that. Um, I guess that brings me, since we kind of touched on politics a little bit, so how are you all feeling about the new administration, um, the factually new administration, even though some people won't admit it? Um, so how are you all feeling about that? Um, 
I know I just feel kind of a sense of lightness, I guess, that will be returning to at least like regular racism, as TikTok has put it. <laughs> you know, I've seen some scary things in the last four years, but at least we'll be <laughs> returning to some sense of normalcy, I guess. But that goes to show there's still there's still power to fight in this new administration. But there's kind of this duality for me personally of like, you know what, we got a black woman in the White House. Um, but things definitely do need to get better. But how are you all feeling about social justice, environmentalism, and everything that the Biden-Harris ticket has to offer? I feel like this is very twofold for me. I voted for Bernie first off before the ticket was decided. So I was already like clearly, you know, Biden-Harris all the way, but I wasn't like, yes, like this is going to change everything. Um, And so I was actually really surprised by the emotions I felt when it was announced, mainly that Kamala was going to be be VP. And I like tears, tears of there's someone that I can see myself in, in one of the most powerful positions in the world, really. And that was something I just didn't expect at all. And so it gives me a sense of pride and a sense of like warmth deep inside, like, okay, progress can happen. It is happening. But at the same time, I'm nervous because everything is so polarized right now. And I hope that those who have, quote unquote, been putting in the work the last six months or however long they've decided to acknowledge these issues, continue to do that work regardless of who is in office. Because it's not just up to Biden and Harris to fix everything and until everyone starts to realize it's our individual contributions that will actually push things. It's our local elections. It's our state-level decisions that really will have more impact on how everyday life looks. And it's those decisions you have at work with your friends. Like, these things still need to happen. So for me, I'm trying not to be too pessimistic. I'm trying to maintain that sense of optimism, mainly so I can have a bit of joy in my life. Um, But I just, I hope that this is seen as a potential for change, but not the cure-all for everything that's going on right now. And I think that kind of reminds me about what we were talking about earlier and this kind of burden of Blackness. And I think that the fact that Black women in large part saved this democracy by registering people to vote Never in my life would I think Atlanta, Philly, and Detroit would determine this election. And I find it so funny that they're saying, okay, there's all these illegitimate votes. No, they're saying those are Black votes. And they're saying that they don't want Black people to vote in this country. And there's this burden that we're temporarily celebrated for saving this democracy, a democracy that has a long history of hurting us. But are they going to show up after the fact? The, like just exactly what you were saying earlier, but Abby, how are you? How are you feeling about that kind of that burden of us to save our country, save organizations, put in the emotional labor to make an organization or our country better, but then we're still not respected and taken care of in this in this country. 
I think it's annoying. Um, I'm tired. <laughs> I know we're all tired. It is tired. <laughs> um, but I think it it's also important that uh, although this is a moment of celebration for most of us, okay, shouldn't be for all of us, um, uh, it, it's a time where we need to take um, or hold, um, you know, President-elect Biden and um, and Vice President-elect Harris accountable. Um, I I think it's important that we really keep a close eye on what they're doing and make sure they actually come through with all of the promises that they've made to the country, to certain communities. Um, and through that, we can definitely see um, or hopefully we can see some changes. So I'm really hopeful, but I'm also um, cautiously optimistic and and we'll just be keeping an eye on them because that's the only way that we can make things better and create a better future for all of us, not just some of us. Um, so yeah, holding them accountable is kind of the the biggest action that I plan to do. And just like you said, accountability is a journey. And all the people who posted the black, you know, tiles over the summer, like, thank you. I appreciate it, you know. Um, But accountability is a journey and it doesn't stop just after you do that kind of that one act. It doesn't stop. Everything isn't okay just because Biden, like, oh, thank God, is going to be the president of the United States. Um, We still have to address the fact that 55% of white women. And I know this is just one exit poll. People keep saying, you know, there's hope. There's hope for us. It wasn't It wasn't really 55%. It was 55% of white women voted for Trump. And that is scary to me. And I feel like there's still a misunderstanding of, I was talking to my mom about when we see Trump trains go by, we're scared. It's not like a Bush situation where it's like, okay, you know, he's annoying, but you know, I'm scared. I feel my body tense up and I feel so much hatred from that. And that hatred just didn't disappear overnight. So I really hope that allies who posted that black square, they show up for black lives in 2021. And all I can do is hope, cross my fingers. Can I add something really quickly to that? Um, And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about Um, how, you know, the question you asked about how there's tension between kind of our dual identities as, you know, Black women. Um, And that 55% of white women who voted for Trump, that's kind of the epitome of white feminism. When you choose fragility and ego over womanhood, over the Native women, over the Black women, over the Latinx women, who are fighting for equality and justice in voting for Biden, and yet you're choosing this with the side of the oppressor who you are, but like you're choosing that side. You're choosing your ego over womanhood. So I just, yeah, I had to point that out because. Absolutely. And it's just a case study. It's just a case study in intersectional feminism. And also, I don't know why people are like, you know, we can get along if we voted for Trump. And it's like, okay, well, good people, quote unquote, good people. It's so easily, you can so easily be influenced by greed and selfishness and all that kind of stuff and vote for someone who 
really hurt a lot of people. And this isn't even just about politics. These are like civil rights, human rights, and environmental violations that happened in the last four years. So I think it's really interesting now that Trump has lost. A lot of people are calling for, you know, unity. We got to just, you know, get together. Let's look the other way. And it's kind of like, well, I think we need to reflect as a society why, what is broken in this society that we allowed someone with this much hatred that basically advocated uh, advocated against everyone who wasn't a white male or white male adjacent, i.e. white women. And we, 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 need to, we need to address, we need to address that. But not to get too political, and we can segue into a couple of things that are a little bit more fun. Um, but Camila, you're not only an advocate for sustainable living, you're also an incredible runner. And I hope people follow you on Instagram so they can see the ways that you kind of storytell about your running. It's more than just running for you. Can you dive into that about what running means to you, how it makes you feel, and how it relates to your identity and the work that you do? Definitely. I think I'm at this intersection, interesting intersection as a runner because I'm a Black woman who runs longer distances. Um, and I've always been the only in my circles. Um, in high school, there were very few, if more than a handful. And I was on a a rather large team, so I definitely stood out as a black woman. When I got to college, I believe I was the only woman doing a fall sport even at UC San Diego. And I struggled a lot with my identity because I feel like, especially when you're getting into something, you want to fit in. And what I've realized now, taking a step back and growing into who I am within the industry, that not only was I a part of white teams, but the running industry as a whole is very white. And when you look inside, it starts to make sense that what is reflected is what it is. So for me, I feel like it really was after the murder of Ahmad that I started to recognized that my network just wasn't aware of my experience as a Black woman runner. And while it was great that everyone was running their two point, you know, two, three miles, all of my friends do that anyway. So it was like, yeah, that's great that you named your Strava after him today, but you also tacked on another six miles and just broke out the activity because you were going to run a little over two miles anyway. So I felt it was important for me to just be more open with my experience and what I feel within these spaces because I think my voice is louder in a network of people who understand where I'm coming from as an athlete. And I feel there's a lot of similarities between running and activism because running is a sustained effort. Training is something that takes time. You put in the mileage. Some days are easier than others. You race. You might take a day or two to rest and find a bit of joy, and then you start training again, and you keep going, and it's this continuous cycle, and it's the same with activism. It's not something that you ever really get to turn off once you've turned it on. There's always more work to be done, but you can focus on your training plan and where you are in the progress and what milestones you want to hit. So 
for me, it just seemed like a really natural intersection to be able to touch a sector of this outdoor industry and outdoor community um, by tying being Black and being a runner together in that way. So, And Abby, for you, what would be, I don't want to say you're running because I know that's like, I don't know, because you've just lived such an interest, an interesting life. And I think the thing about our friendship that I love so much is that like, you're so humble. You're so gracious. No one knows that you're just getting flued out everywhere. Just kidding. <laughs> but you have a really cool story. And I think some of the conversations that we've had in particular that stick out to me um, is just kind of misunderstandings about Africa in general. You know, some people believing that Africa is a country, which is hilarious. Or when they think of Africa, they think of two extremes, either safari, going on a safari, or they think about poverty. And then there's a lot of like white saviorism, I guess that comes to play. But I know we don't have that much time to get into it, but um, how, what are your thoughts on how some environmentalists and human, humanitarians kind of treat conversations and initiatives about Africa? Yeah, well, I think um, it's kind of sad because most um, look at it kind of twofold. So in one instance, Africa isn't even considered to be a part of the solution to, um, you know, the climate crisis. And that's really terrible because uh, Africa, as well as most of the global South, will be the most <laughs> impacted by climate change. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, or on the flip side, um, if we are, like, if the continent is considered to be a part of the solution, then it's almost burdening them with saving the whole climate crisis. Again, even though the continent, and again, most of the global South, were not the people who started it or who created this issue in the first place. Um, and, and again, it goes kind of back to what we were talking about with the election where BIPOC, BIPOC communities in the U.S. were kind of tasked to save the to save democracy, um, and BIPOC in general are just always there picking up the pieces that mainly white people have left us with the mess, and you know have created in the first place. So um, I think that those are the the two biggest issues, and and just the mainly the the fact that with colonization, it's a huge issue because a lot of African countries are still facing those impacts. And so when you assume that the African continent should just be on the same level playing field as countries, you know, like England or, you know, um, Germany or the U.S., um, it it creates almost a disadvantage for those African countries that haven't even had the ability to develop like Western countries have during industrialization. So that is the biggest misconception and the biggest roadblock because we're not allowing African countries to develop so that they can create economic growth um, we're just kind of assuming that they should also be cutting down their carbon emissions when in reality they should be given the space to do so so that they can create more 
you know, like better energy tactics and initiatives to create adaptation and resilience to climate change. I feel like we have to kind of dive into you all's individual stories and like another like mini episode. So I'm going to cross my fingers because I have so many questions. This season is sponsored by Drops. Think about all those plastic bottle cleaning products that you see filling grocery store shelves. Those cleaning products are loaded with unnecessary chemicals and dyes, and a shocking 68% of those bottles aren't recycled. That's over 275 metric tons of plastic waste that goes into our oceans and waterways every year. That's why we love Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, you'll see in no time how great their eco-friendly products are, Drops delivers powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas to your door and low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. All the cleaning power comes in one small, efficient Drops pod that costs less than what you're using now. Sign up for auto shipments to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. Use code DISMANTLED at drops.com dismantled for 25% off your first order. If you could say anything to yourself 10 years ago, like a little piece of advice, what would you say? I think for me, I always go back to, I wish I would have known that I was inherently worthy and we are all inherently worthy regardless of any external validation, regardless of your relationship, your job title, all of those things, those are all things that can be taken away. And when I used to describe myself, you know, think in my early 20s, I would say, okay, I'm a girlfriend. I'm a, you know, I guess I study environmental science, but I didn't say like, I want to be a kind person or I'm worthy inherently, or I'm someone that loves myself. And I wish I could have told my younger self that, you know what, you're a baddie. Regardless, regardless, um, what would you all tell your younger selves? A little piece of wisdom with everything that you know now after getting through almost 2020, what would you say? I think I would tell myself that being Black is beautiful. I think that's something I really needed to hear 10 years ago. I was 18. Um and I was about to enter a very white space going to college. Um, my college was 1.5, 1.6% Black, like not Jeez. a lot of Black people around me. And I think I accepted far too many times when people said I acted white or I wasn't really Black or I talked white um, as a compliment in a way because that's what you are told repeatedly. And it took me a really long time to confidently say that I'm Black, <laughs> like, period. I'm Black because of who I am, because of the experiences I've had, because of the way I show up. And it's something that I'm proud of. And so, yeah, if I could go back and tell 18-year-old Camila something, it's like, Black is beautiful and lean into that because it's who you are. Wow, Camila, I don't know how, how to even get on your level there. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to um, top that. But I think I would tell my younger self um, to breathe. Um, growing up, I was always so consumed and didn't really know who I was and 
kind of felt like I had to fit into the box that other people would like me to be in or just people pleasing in general for who I am. And um, I think I would tell myself to breathe because figuring out yourself is going to be a whole journey. Like I still don't have it all together. Um, And I don't think I ever will. And that's kind of the beautiful part of life. Um, Acknowledging that you'll never get to that perfect, ideal, true self. Um, But you'll get close. And that's pretty spectacular because you'll be able to grow and see yourself in a different light each, you know, after each year, each age. Um, and and for me, it's been an incredible journey to already see that in myself. Um, so I just, I can't wait until I'm like 30 and amazing and thriving and just being my whole badass self. Well, I must admit, you both are pretty badass already. So I'm just super grateful to, you know, I'm so happy that we met um, working in this, you know, very white um, industry. (laughs) And it reminds me of this book my mom made me read when I was younger. It's, I forget the name. It's like, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Something like that. And I get it. And I don't know why it took me so long to get it. I feel like I fought against it. Kind of like you were saying earlier, Camila, like being in some of these spaces, I tried to run away from my blackness. And I feel like working with you all made me run closer to it and understand that like this is the community that I need even if I saw you all like once a year I feel like I would still be so fulfilled and so happy um so I'm just really thankful for this friendship and to end it okay Hmm. what does an intersectional future look like to both of you all if we could imagine a future that was better for people and planet, what would it be like for you? I would say weed would be legal. Cannabis. Prohibition is over. The climate crisis far behind us. And there are Black and Indigenous and Latinx people in positions of power and leadership and that there never has to be a lonely eco kid. You know, I want every Black girl to know that she can be an environmentalist and to have that jotted down in her textbooks. I feel like, for me, in the future, I I hope that everything that is a part of this movement is just a part of people's being from the beginning. I hope that we learn about these issues so much sooner. I hope that they're in children's books and the chapter books you read in first and second grade and the textbooks you get in third grade and that the the entire curriculum is rewritten so that we no longer ignore our past and assume that we can just move through it, but that we actually dive into it so that we can do the learning so we can come out on the other side. I think until we acknowledge the past, like face to face, that this is what we did and this is how we got here, it's going to be really hard to make that forward progress. So to me, I always, I start with books. Like my mom started me with books and that's how I learned so much of my own history as a Black woman, but also the pieces of history that just aren't taught. And I think until we figure that out, it's hard to move forward. So 
I see tons of books. <laughs> I don't know. A big intersectional library. That's the future. I exactly. love that. <laughs> uh, for me, an intersectional future looks like a, a world where in every area and aspect of life, we are taking into account and centering intersectional identities. I think a lot of people forget that whether it's economic issues or, you know, environmental policies, um, healthcare, whatever it is, we need intersectional identities in order to address those issues and move us forward. We can't erase or forget about a community of people if we want to propel all of us forward in this world. So... That's how I see an intersectional future that is sustainable, beautiful, and inclusive of everyone. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. And to all of you all for tuning in to the first episode of Dismantled. We'll be bringing you new episodes every other week. So make sure to follow us on Instagram at Intersectional Environmentalist for updates. Thanks again for listening. I'm Leah Thomas, and here's to a future that's intersectional. Intersectional.